Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today, the first episode after Halloween 2021. Yes. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing fine. So we're recording this on Halloween. Because uh, Halloween was on a Sunday this year. And we always record on Sundays. By the time it comes out, it'll be post-Halloween. But um, we had our big Halloween party last night because, well, more people are going to come to your party if it's on a Saturday night than a Sunday night. And we had a great time. Yes. And right now it's Halloween evening as we're recording. We've got uh, candy and comics that we're giving out to trick-or-treaters but um, we're also like kind of recovering from last night's party still. I don't understand why I feel hungover like this. My suspicions, because like, yes, while well, I did drink, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't feeling bad when I went to bed or anything. So I suspect that it's because we stayed up so late. And my I... body is just like, why the fuck were you awake at 2 a.m.? <laughs> we did a lot for... Our Halloween party day yesterday, I made candied apples that didn't turn out well. And I also made butterscotch pudding that I think turned out the way it was supposed to, but Sarah didn't like it. The recipe says cook the caramel until it's on its way to being burnt, Mm -hmm. which is weird because burnt caramel is not good. And that is all I tasted in the pudding, which like, to be fair, caramel is really hard to do. Um, so kudos to Ben for giving it a shot, but it's weird to me that that's in a recipe. The pudding like had a strong burnt taste, um, but it was like fine for me. Um, I think if I had like coffee or something with it to like cut it, it would have been fine. I don't think I did the pudding wrong because like once you bring the caramel to that state, you do some other stuff. The recipe's like, yeah, the caramel will remelt, which it did. With the candied apples, I definitely fucked up because the caramel turned to like glass, like you couldn't bite into it. So that was that was a mistake. I also just made like a regular dinner, um, which was good. All of these recipes, the candied apples and the butterscotch pudding were coming out of the Dungeons and Dragons cookbook, Heroes Feast. So they were Troll Tide, candied apples and Barovian butterscotch pudding. And then we also made later in the evening when we were just hanging out during the party and stuff chelton zombies which it's just a zombie like it's a zombie cocktail if you're aware of what that is and we each had one mine like they tasted good i didn't really feel any kind of buzz at all sarah's hit her pretty hard i am a lightweight yeah and the zombie was quite strong yes so it took half the mickey of rum it's ridiculous so you know i i do want to say that like I think it makes sense to me that you've been like a little <laughs> under the weather today. Ben's like, this is being hung over in your 30s. Yeah. D- deal with it. Anyways, what are we watching today? So I have to give a big apology to our listeners because at the end of last week's episode, I teased that we would be watching Night of the Ghouls, the lost Ed Wood film. Yeah. But over the weekend, 
I discovered that like somehow my timeline for what we were going to be doing through 1958 was like all messed up. Hmm. And as I tried to re-research it today, scrambling to figure out what the heck we were watching, it was very difficult. I kept coming across like increasingly contradictory sources about when certain movies came out. Oh. Now, to be fair, it's worth always remembering that if you're in sort of a pre-1975 era, the idea that like a movie would universally release on the same day everywhere isn't true yeah movies would premiere in a big city new york la whatever and then they would sort of make their way across the country so they have different premiere dates all over the place generally speaking when i cite a premiere date for the show i'm talking about like the earliest release which is usually like the la release but that's part of maybe the reason why I was having such difficulty because with these B-movies, these 1950s drive-in B-movies, a lot of them didn't get like big L.A. New York premieres. They just sort of were like, yeah, we shipped some prints to uh, Missouri and Philadelphia and we'll see how they do. <laughs> so all of which is to say that I had to spend the day kind of readjusting my timeline, figuring some stuff out. I was like a year off with Night of the Ghouls. We're going to be watching it for early 1959, not early 1958. Okay. Um, and in this process of research, I discovered that we had missed a couple of Japanese horror films. Okay. So we are going back in time a bit, as well as journeying to Japan for this week's episode. And we are watching Kyuketsuga, or Vampire Moth, from 1956, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. Now, I believe before this horror movie, the other, like I guess, like earliest horror movie, um, it, it wouldn't be Gojira, right? Like, we would have had something in between. Half Human, right? And we also had a second Yatsuya Kaiden adaptation in 1956. Okay, so this is before that Yatsuya Kaiden. Okay. Um, so the most previous Japanese movie we would have looked at before this would have been probably Half Human. But yeah, we're in that kind of era. Okay. Um, this is a Toho film. So it's also like in that same oeuvre as Gojira, Half Human, that same kind of... It's the same studio, same kind of people, right? Okay. And this... 1956 film is based on a 1955 novel of the same name by Japanese novelist Seishi Yokomizo. Okay. And basically, because you were feeling a little bit under the weather and we were pressed for time and I figured out that this was the movie we were going to be watching like three hours before we sat down to record, <laughs> um, I just kind of like did all the research here to save you some trouble. Oh, well, thank you. So Seishi Yokomizo was born in 1902 in Kobe, and he graduated college with a degree in pharmacy, and he was intended to take over his family's drugstore. But ultimately, he decided to pursue his interest in literature that had begun when he got really into reading detective fiction as a young boy. <laughs> he had his first story published in 1921, and starting in 1926, he served as an editor at several magazines before deciding to devote himself to writing full-time in 1932. 
His first novel, an historical detective novel called Onibi, was published in 1935. But during World War II, he had difficulties getting published due to, like, wartime conditions. Um, He had tuberculosis, which he contracted in about 1935 or 37, and he couldn't get antibiotics for it during the war due to shortages. Yeah. And so with not being able to get published, he wasn't also like earning any money. So he was very poor and he would joke to friends that it was a race to see whether he would die of TB or starvation first. You know, dark humor gets you through those times, I guess. In 1939, he wrote Dokuro Kengyo, which is the Death's Head Strangler, uh, which is one of Japan's first vampire novels. It is set during the Tokugawa shogunate, but involves a vampire. That's cool. So he's tiptoeing into vampires while still writing these detective stories. Mm-hmm. After the war, Yokomizo's fortunes changed for the better as his Western-style detective novels became highly popular and were considered the model for post-war Japanese mystery fiction. His most well-known creation is the detective Kosuke Kindaichi, who debuted in an acclaimed locked-room mystery called The Hanjin Murders in 1946. There are 77 stories in the (laughs) Kosuke Kindaichi series, and these books only began to be translated into English in 2020. Okay. The two books that were translated in 2020 were The Hanjin Murders, which is the first one, and then The Inugami Clan, which is sort of like the most famous one, the the best one. Sure. So with 77 novels of this character, how does that compare to like Hercule Poirot? I don't know off the top of my head, like how many Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes like stories there are. There's, there's very few Sherlock Holmes novels, but there's a lot of short stories. So, you know, but it's, it's up there in that kind of realm absolutely vampire moth from 1955 is the 29th book in the series um and it is the story of a nude model being stalked by a man who seems to be a monstrous vampire okay yokomizo passed away of colon cancer in 1981 but his name graces the yokomizo sheishi prize which is awarded annually to the best previously unpublished novel-length mystery story in Japan. The prize is 10 million yen, which is like $100,000. Oh, damn. Which makes it one of the biggest cash prizes for literature in the world. That's awesome. So by 1956, Toho Studios had already produced one Kindaichi adaptation, uh, Ghost Man, in 1954, starring Seizaburu Kawaza as Kindaichi and directed by Motoyoshi Oda. That film is about a serial killer with three fingers who stalks and kills young women and then poses their corpses for nude photos in an album that he keeps. <laughs> this is really uh, like criminal minds up in here. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if maybe we should also be watching Ghost Man and going back in time a little further um, based on that description, but I couldn't find any copies Oh, okay. To watch. So, so it kind of makes the decision for us, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. So we're just sticking with Vampire Moth here. This second effort at a Kindaichi adaptation would be Toho's last stab at the character until the highly regarded series of five films in the 1970s starring Koji Ishizaka. 
This time around, Kindaichi is played by 38-year-old actor Ryo Ikebe, who might be best remembered in the West for his roles in tokusatsu films, such as Battle in Outer Space, Gorath, and The War in Space. The adaptation from the novel is by screenwriters Dai Nishijima and Hideo Oguni. Oguni is a highly regarded Japanese screenwriter with over 100 credits on films such as Ikiru, Seven Samurai, I Live in Fear, Warning from Space, the 1956 Yatsuya Kaiden, Throne of Blood, The Lower Depths, The Hidden Fortress, The Bad Sleep Well, Sanjuro, High and Low, Redbeard, Tora Tora Tora, <laughs> Dodasgaden, and Ron. All of those are Toho films, right? All of those are Toho, and most of those are Akira Kurosawa films. Yeah, yeah. I thought this dude's name sounded familiar. Other familiar faces in the cast for fans of Japanese cinema include Ichiro Erashima, who played the boss in King Kong vs. Godzilla, okay. the comedy role. Eijiro Toro, who is sort of a character actor. Um, he's got roles in Stray Dog, Tokyo Story, Seven Samurai, Samurai 2 and 3, I Live in Fear, The Lower Depths, Ballad of Narayama, Yojimbo, High and Low, Redbeard, and Tora Tora Tora. Minoru Chiaki, who often got used in Kurosawa films as kind of like an amiable friend character. Uh, he's in Stray Dog, Rashomon, The Idiot, Ikiru. He's um, Heihachi in Seven Samurai. He's also in Godzilla Raids Again, I Live in Fear, Samurai 3, Throne of Blood, The Lower Depths, Hidden Fortress, and High and Low. As well as actress Chieko Nakahita, who you'd recognize from early Kurosawa films like The Most Beautiful, No Regrets for Our Youth, One Wonderful Sunday, Drunken Angel, and The Quiet Duel. A lot of those titles are very familiar to me. Is that just because of Toho being like a major studio and therefore I'm familiar with those works? Or... Can you remind me like what the, the Japanese film industry looks like? It, does it have multiple major studios or is it really just Toho? At this time, um, we're in the 1950s, which is like the golden age of Japanese cinema. So right. we have multiple major studios competing. Uh, Toho, Daiei, Toei, and Shin Toho. So the reason why you're hearing a lot of the same titles over and over again and why you recognize all these titles is because Toho was a studio. These people are signed to contracts, so they're all going to be in the same kind of movies. And Toho was the studio that did Akira Kurosawa's films and the Godzilla movies. And we're fans of both of those in this household. So there's a lot of overlap here. <laughs> sure. For example, the music here is by Masaru Sato who was Kurosawa's regular composer from about 1955 onward and also the secondary composer for the Godzilla series. So his scores include films like Godzilla Raids Again, Half Human, Throne of Blood, The Lower Depths, The H-Man, The Hidden Fortress, The Bad Sleep Well, Yojimbo, Senjuro, High and Low, Redbeard, Ebera, Horror of the Deep, Son of Godzilla, and Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. Ebera is uh, the lobster, right? Yes, that's okay. right. The film's director is Nobuo Nakagawa, who was born in Kyoto in 1905. Getting his start as an assistant director in 1929, he debuted as a feature film director in 1934. His early films were comedies and documentaries for Toho, but after the war, he switched to crime movies and thrillers. After Vampire Moth, he left Toho for their competitor Shin Toho, 
And when he was there, he would begin a series of horror films, which includes 1959's Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden and 1960's Jingoku. So this is sort of a transitional film for him where he was transitioning from doing mystery crime thrillers to horror movies. And this movie's kind of like the pivot point. Uh, I like then that it's about a moth or the name, the word moth is in it because, you know, the caterpillar to moth. Oh, okay, sure. (laughs) So Vampire Moth is Japan's first vampire film. Uh, However, it is a lot like America's early vampire films like London After Midnight in that the vampire turns out to be like a dude in a mask pretending to be a vampire. Spoilers, Ben. Oh my God. Well, I always feel like it's important (laughs) to have the right expectations when you go into a movie like this. The earlier vampire novel Mm -hmm. that you mentioned from this author is that a case of a fake vampire as well? Do you know? I don't know. It's not been translated into English, so I was going off a one-sentence plot summary. Okay. I was just curious. Obviously, this is a different story, but yeah. For sure. This film was released on April 11th, 1956, and has never been released in North America. Oh, There is a pretty good quality copy up on YouTube that I've thrown into the Scream Scene playlist, and it's got an option for Japanese subtitles, which therefore then has an option to be uh, Google translated into English. So that's what we're going to be watching. Okay. Well, uh, hopefully it won't um, be too rough of a translation. Especially in a mystery story. Yeah. Well, folks, hopefully you can watch along. Uh, I'm pretty excited for this. This sounds really interesting. Yeah, me too. Um, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Kiketsuga from 1956, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Kyuketsuga, or Vampire Moth, from 1956, directed by Noburo Nakagawa. And listen, folks, there's a reason we don't watch foreign films if we can't find them with subtitles. (laughs) This, there have often been cases where we've gone with auto-translated subtitles from Google, if a film's on YouTube. Now they they've been okay sometimes. Sometimes they've burned us. There are a few levels to the auto-translated subtitle game because if the film has real closed captions on YouTube, like a Japanese film has Japanese closed captions on it, and then you're just asking Google to auto-translate those closed captions, that's one thing because Google's taking text and running it through Google Translate and spitting out some English text. However... YouTube also has a auto-caption feature where YouTube listens to the dialogue and guesses at what's being said and then captions it. And then you can auto-translate that. We've done that a few times as well. And that is what we did tonight. And that often is a lot worse in its output, but usually it's enough that we can get by. Usually it's enough that 
with the aid of a plot summary, you know, and the subtitles being kind of related to what's happening, you can sort of muddle your way through, even if you're not getting the, the intricacies of the dialogue. In this case, it basically totally failed us. Vast swaths of dialogue were not subtitled, and when things were subtitled, it was with often what seemed to be complete non sequiturs. Like, the stuff that was translated, I would say maybe a good 20 to 30% would be accurate to what they were saying. Mm -hmm. Um, Repeated names, nouns, that sort of thing. Uh, But the rest of it would be quite random. Yeah, basically you could say a third of the movie got subtitles and a third of those subtitles were probably accurate. So we didn't get a lot of the intricacies of this movie and given that it my bet is that if we had perfect subtitles this would still be a slightly difficult movie to follow because it's got a really convoluted mystery plot all of which is to say this is why we won't why we will just skip a horror movie from another country if we can't get subtitles because we can't accurately judge a film this way and in this case we're really just gonna have to go from the seat of our pants i guess and and kind of wing it so we we did try to find more in-depth plot synopses to kind of guide us with watching this movie when we realized the state of these translations and those weren't helpful either but the most in-depth plot summary i could find seemed like it itself was google translated from something yeah it didn't make any sense no um even after watching the movie that would not have made any sense um now i will say that part of the main cause for google having issues i think is the sound quality of Mm. the film that we we watched on youtube you know it's tough when like you're trying to translate uh, a foreign language and then there's like music or applause going on in the background and then of course since this is a bit of a mystery uh you have people whispering and so those are hard to tell you have a guy who has like a muffled sound to his voice because he has a mask slash scarf over his face so we're all we're all just muddling through exactly so we'll try to give a plot summary i guess and see how it turns out i've got like a rough plot summary based on what i think happened in front of me i think you have the same yeah so why don't i go first and then you can tell me like what kind of matches up with yours okay so um In the context setting, you said that this is a movie about a nude model and a stalker. And And it's not. It is not. Um, We do follow models, but it seems to be more about like fashion designers and then the models that show off those designs at the fashion show. So when we open, we come to a fashion show. There's clearly a competition going on between like you got head designers and then like their group of models as like their team and being awarded things. We see that there's um this mysterious guy who I'm just going to call the phantom mm. um who gives this gift box to one of the the teams. We'll say team A. Uh this guy we'll say is like a worker of our lead designer that we're following. So Phantom gives this guy this box. He gives it to their lead designer. And when she opens it, it's an apple that has three markings in them. And she faints at this. Um, Now, they just look like 
gashes into an apple. It's not like some kind of kanji that was difficult to read. Everyone just kind of refers to it as if it's been like slashed through. Our lead designer here, um, she gets a friend of hers to pay her money, this male friend of hers, and she goes off and meets the phantom in the middle of a dark cemetery and gives him money. He gives her paper um, and then she heads back to her hotel room. Kind of our lead people that we follow, who are like the protagonists, for lack of a better word, they go in to check on the lead designer and she's burning up these designs um, of like dresses and stuff like that. So a little bit of a mystery going on. Now, when our lead designer did go out to meet the Phantom, we saw that she was also followed by her male servant who gave her that uh, box. Servants. I think, they, I think they call them employees nowadays, Sarah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, her, her, male, uh, her male employee follows and um, follows them to this insect museum. And <laughs> he like knocks and like gets scared away by the guy's teeth. Um, and then he checks again later. And this old man who we saw was also at the fashion show lives in this insect museum. <laughs> Eventually, um, some people start dying. And when these people die, um, the models specifically, uh, they show up and they have um, a uh, moth on one of their tits because they're naked. And so that takes the police to the insect museum. They find some remains on the property as well as a dead model inside. So the old guy is taken in, presumably. We don't see that part. Um, but then later we learn, like, he might have been set up because uh, the old guy, he's snooping around and has, like, the same kind of, like, scarf over the face as we see the phantom wearing. But when he takes it off, he doesn't have the weird teeth and the dialogue is something along the lines of having a brother. Now, in the midst of all these models being targeted and killed, uh, we see that our lead designer is also attacked and strangled, um, but that attack is interrupted, and so she's recovering. And when the police go to question her, she's like, yeah, no, there's like werewolves in my past because uh, I was um, in France with a good friend of mine, and he turned out to be a werewolf, and... He is who I'm getting my designs from. He can't actually be a designer because he's a werewolf or something. So, but he's dead now. I barely escaped with my life. We get more deaths um, and more doubles of this mysterious phantom. Uh, eventually, we learn that some other designers are implicated um, because their designs were stolen by the phantom and then sold to our lead designer. Eventually, the cops and our main cop... Um, character that Ben uh, described in the context setting catches the lead designer buying these stolen designs from the Phantom and um, they get caught and chased through this old decrepit building um, with the Phantom eventually like showing like his real face because it was all a mask and then uh, falling to his death. The head designer uh, she gets shot by the phantom. And also, apparently some models were, like, kidnapped and kept in, like, a cellar in this old building. Um, but anyways, that's that's what I got from the movie. Uh, 
how does that relate to your interpretation of events? Okay, so here's here's my version. Um, so there's this fashion company, and there's a reporter uh, who's played by like the Kurosawa actor who's always everyone's best friend. And he has a girlfriend who's like a junior designer at this fashion company. There's also an older woman who's like the senior designer at that company. And I think her husband runs the company. So the reporter goes to like a fashion show competition. Uh, There are models there who have like a manager. And there's also a mysterious old man in the audience. And this manager meets with the character Sarah referred to as the Phantom, who I will refer to as the Vampire. <laughs> but his appearance is he wears a black pea coat with like the collar up, a scarf over his mouth, and sunglasses and a black fedora. And when he removes the scarf, he has like basically a lipless mouth filled with like shark teeth. The manager meets with the vampire and gets a package from him and gives that package to the senior designer. And it's an apple with like a bite in it. And she faints. Later, um, at like a dinner where they're celebrating the fact that they won the fashion competition um, and the other team came in second, uh, the owner of the company leaves early. As the girlfriend and reporter are remarking on how weird that is, the senior designer also leaves early because she's feeling ill. She goes to her room but actually like sneaks out and the manager follows her to a creepy house where the vampire seems to live because he's the one who answers the door and scares the manager off. The vampire kills uh, some fashion models and he ships one of them to the fashion company in a mannequin crate. And when they open it up, the all of the models who he kills, he, he like they're nude. Um, so they're nude with a, a moth pinned to their tit. But they're 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 nude. So that's where the nude models come in is they're actually nude after they're dead. Yeah. Um, Aren't we all nude just under our clothes? That's almost explicitly (laughs) not what the word means. Meanwhile, the senior designer is meeting a mystery man who looks and sounds exactly like the vampire. And she's buying designs off him, which we later find out he is stealing from the second fashion company that comes in second place the police get involved but they're getting really nowhere with their investigations the reporter and the girlfriend somehow make a connection between the moths and the creepy old house which turns out to be a insect museum of moths like a lepidoptery museum Uh, they go there and instead of the vampire answering the door it's the old man from before so they get chased off by the old man and leave and they come back and bring the police with them. But the man is gone. And instead his house servant, I think leads them on a tour of the uh, Lepidoptery museum that turns out also to have like a dungeon in the basement where there's a bunch of dead naked models with moths on their tits. So now the police are just crawling over this place, finding dead bodies everywhere. And the famous detective Kosuke Kindaichi, Uh, shows up i guess he just like decided to take an interest in the case uh he seems cool yeah the way he's introduced is very like hey you know who this guy is yeah this is a cool guy um the police figure out that the fashion designs that they find at the insect museum old man's house are stolen from the second company The police and the detective go to question the senior designer and the company owner, who I think is her husband. 
And turns out she had a friend who she was in France with and he got turned into a werewolf and she ran away and just kind of left him behind there. But now he's back. That's who the vampire is. And she gives the cops and the detective his apartment address. Meanwhile, the old man has tracked the vampire to that apartment, but the vampire got away first. The old man is the vampire's brother, you see? His twin brother, maybe? <laughs> um, the cops get to the apartment after the old man leaves. Then there's another fashion show. Uh, some more models are killed. So is designer from Company B and maybe the manager that we've seen walking around. The senior designer meets the mystery man for another payoff, uh, but then the vampire shows up and kills him. So who was that mystery man who was giving her designs? Well, it turns out it wasn't the vampire. It was her husband who'd been giving her the money to get the designs from the mystery man in the first place. <laughs> Maybe? The vampire, meanwhile, has some models hostage beneath a bombed out parking garage. The senior designer goes to the old man's house. She gets confronted by the vampire and the detective. The vampire shoots the detective. The vampire then kills the old man. Police swarm that house again and find more bodies. The vampire takes the senior designer to the parking garage. They are confronted by the detective who is alive somehow. The vampire takes off his scarf to reveal his scary teeth and then takes off his scary teeth to reveal a normal face, revealing that he was somebody all along. Then that somebody kills the senior designer uh, and then the detective chases him through the bombed out parking garage. A whole like SWAT team of cops show up and everybody chases everyone through the bombed out parking garage until the somebody criminal falls to his death. The end. Your synopsis is better than mine, I will admit. I think between the two of them, the listener should be able to get something. At the very least, they'll be able to tell that this is not horror. Okay, I, I want to mention something about that off the bat. All right. I think, so, without being able to understand fully what's going on in this movie, I think probably this movie's really cool. Probably. Like, I think this is probably a good movie. Yeah, you could tell that they were doing some really neat things with the cinematography, the mise-en-scene, like when the model shows up in the crate and they uncover her and everything. Like, it it's well done. The movie has a lot of style. Yes. And I think it also has a lot of scares in it. Like, there are moments in the movie that are horror movie moments. Like, the movie kind of is a horror movie until the detective shows up and then it turns into a mystery. Personally, I think we should disqualify this movie. Oh, because it was just so difficult to follow it? Yeah, like, I think there's a chance this movie could be horror enough to get on the list, but you're saying you think it's not. But I think that in either case, we can't really judge without actually being able to know for sure what the plot is. Yeah. If there's any listener who understands Japanese, can I ask you please to watch this and, you know, understand what's going on and then let us know, like, is this accurate? Uh, is the phantom vampire someone who we just missed early in the movie? Yeah, like, who what? is he supposed to be? What's the reveal? Is he the senior designer's brother or, or like what's the relationship between everybody? Why is things happening? 
Yes. Why is things happening? Because, <laughs> yeah, I think as it stands, we're not going to rank it, but I also don't think we can even say it's not horror for sure. We just kind of have to disqualify it. Well, yeah, that's that's fair. I do still feel like this is not horror because of the emphasis on the mystery mm. part. You're totally right that it has one foot in horror. The scenes with the many, many mannequin parts and the way that disembodied limbs, whether they are mannequin or model, are shown throughout the movie. Um, and you're absolutely right that there are jump scares. So I think those are being done to build tension and to release that tension in like a scare. But once the detective shows up, I think here's, here's the crux of the movie for me. The movie treats the detective as if you should know who this guy is, mm -hmm. especially the way he's just like leaning up against a tree, like a cool guy smoking a cigarette, right? Yeah, like nobody seems to have hired him. He just shows up in the middle of the movie like, hey, what's up? Yeah, I'm just a private eye. I, yeah. I just uh, go where the action is. Yeah. And then the rest of the movie, a lot of it follows him. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, well, why, without knowing who this person is, why are we following him? And because the rest of the movie follows him, it's clear that the beginning part with the horror bits were just a means of getting us to this guy. Sure. It reminds me a lot of American horror films from the 30s. Sure. Where it's like, oh, this is scary. This guy's a, a vampire or a monster or whatever. But it actually turns out that what was more important was like the audience having to track who left the party at what time with who and who was wearing what watch when. And like yeah. then the detective unmasks the monster and it turns out they were somebody, right? Yeah. Like that very like house of mystery kind of style of thing. What this movie has up on those is it's not just set in one creepy old dark house. Like there's a lot of places that we go and a lot of cool cinematography and a lot of great action and style. The entire climax of chasing the phantom vampire through this car garage, it feels very inspired by the third man. And because of the nature of like the cops and the setting, it also feels like it somehow inspired like batman mask of the phantasm which has like a very similar <laughs> chase in it there's a lot of like violence in this yeah. movie a lot of blood a lot of like on-screen murders and things um there's also like a lot of like erotic sexual content like not just um the dead models that are nude but like there's a bit where the like, I think it's the senior designer or maybe it's one of the models, but she's having like a bad dream and just sort of writhing in her nightgown in bed. And like, we can see like the tops of her breasts and like, there's a lot of sex and violence here that is clearly meant to be like exciting. We go to a burlesque show and we see the performance before the one that's meant to like horrify us. And the one that horrifies us is, um, a curtain pulls up and you see like, let's say five women's legs and mm -hmm. they're doing like their dance, whatever. And then eventually the curtain goes up above the thigh and two of the legs are disembodied and have been controlled by like strings. strings. And it like, yes, horrifying, but 
hilarious because these women would have been dancing next to these disembodied legs and are just reacting now. Yeah, somehow they don't notice it until the audience notices it. And someone had to be manipulating them as well, which is very funny, but just definitely like trying to titillate in Mm -hmm. all of the senses of that word. Yeah, absolutely. If this is a movie that was this director's pivot point from doing crime movies to doing horror movies, I can see how that happened looking at this movie. I agree. Like knowing this director goes on to do some really big deal, critically acclaimed horror movies later. Like I can see that here, you know? Yeah. So I I think it's like still something that was good for us to watch, uh, despite the difficulties that we faced with it. Yeah. If someone sends us like an English .srt like subtitle file or something for this movie, like I would I would watch it again and and like maybe come back around and uh, do like an appeal episode or something on it. Like yeah, if you want to appeal our ranking, which is to say disqualifying this movie from ranking, if you want to appeal that, send us subtitles basically yeah well um until we get subtitles this film will go on the miscellaneous part of the list which you can find at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com there you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today as well as our appeals box so if you have that subtitle file you can reach us through our ask box on tumblr or better yet email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com scream scene updates every wednesday on apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud and spotify You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and if you'd like to help us out, you can leave us a rating or a review. You can share the show online through social media, or you can just tell a friend about the show. It is always great to see our growing audience, um, and we love hearing about how much you guys enjoy listening to the podcast. As well as hearing your thoughts about these horror movies as well. Absolutely. We've gotten a lot of... um like discussion on Twitter when people have been watching these horror movies because of, you know, spooky season. And it's always just really fun to talk about these movies. Yeah, absolutely. If you have the means, you can also help support the show financially by heading over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Our Patreon pays for our hosting fees. It helps us take the time out necessary to research record and edit these shows. Um, So it really means a lot to us that we have your support. You can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to all kinds of regular bonus content. We just put out a slew of bonus content throughout October for the Halloween season, including a reading of a spooky short story by Sarah, The Tower, and our special patrons-only bonus episode where we talked about gothic horror and sci-fi horror and just kind of genre in general as well as uh nick cage as a final girl Uh, yeah it it was an interesting discussion if you ever wanted to be like just a fly on the wall while sarah and i talk about movies that's basically what that episode is like patrons will also be able to vote for november's bonus episode so that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so what are we watching next week ben well next week sarah we are going forward to 1957 and the next movie by director Nobuo Nakagawa for his first film at Shintoho and his first straight up horror movie presumably uh, Kaiden Kasane Gafuchi or the ghost story of Kasane Swamp interesting cool well we will see you then creatures of the night bye bye bye